and welcome to Rock Paper Swords, the historical action and adventure podcast. My name is Matthew Harfey. My name is Stephen A. McKay. We are both best-selling historical fiction authors and together we chat about all things historical and anything that could fall under the banner of action and adventure in books, film, TV and games. And we also talk about rock music sometimes. On today's episode, it is our absolute pleasure to have on to the show the incomparable historical fiction author Christian Cameron and his alter ego, the fantasy writer Miles Cameron. Christian has written so many books, I lost count. He's written the Tyrant series that's set in the time of Alexander the Great. The Long War series recounts the epic clash of Greece and Persia. Ancient Greece is also the setting of his Commanders series. Christian's chivalry series chronicles the rise of Sir William Gold and the mercenary companies of 14th century Europe. And in his Tom Swan stories, Christian delves into the life and times of spy and antiquities hunter Tom Swan amidst the politics of the 15th century. He's even written a novel set in revolutionary 18th century North America called Washington and Caesar, Writing as Miles Cameron, he has published several very successful fantasy and science fiction novels, The Traitor's Sun Cycle, Masters and Mages, Age of Bronze and Artifact Space. And writing as Gordon Kent, Christian has also published eight modern day military thrillers. Welcome, Christian. Hello, Christian. Well, thanks very much for having me, Matt uh, and Stephen. And uh, let me just add that those military thrillers were written with my dad. Kenneth Cameron, who was also a very successful author all by all by himself, without me at all, uh, and in fact probably taught me to write. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, I remember we were talking about that one and we met recently. You were saying you were reading one of your dad's books and that you were enjoying it. Yeah, unbelievable. I hadn't read it before. He's such a good mystery novel. I, I'm sort of I'm still I'm still going through a couple of them. Anyway, that's a, a side note, but I am trying to actually get a part of my website dedicated to my dad so that people will keep reading my dad's novels. That's a great idea. So first thing, first things first, when we're going to talk about your books, and obviously you've got a lot of books that you've got behind you that you've already written, but what are you working on right now? And, um, and what have you got coming up? So right now I'm working on the last William Gold novel. And I, you know, I my William Gold series has some very hardcore fans, so I'm just going to say maybe it's not the last. Maybe I'll write one or two more. Uh, but uh, William Gold, the real William Gold, ended up as the sort of captain general of Venice in their war with Genoa in 1380. And that is where I had planned to leave him behind. If I write further adventures after that, they're even more fictional than uh, than William Gold has, has been up till now. So uh, literally before I started fighting my Zoom, uh, I was uh, going through the first hundred pages that I've written, um, just sort of doing a late edit before moving on to uh, to writing further William Gold. And the next project, I don't think is a secret anymore, he said, staring off into space. Um, I'm going to write a sort of spy mystery novel about a series of murders that turn out to have political consequences in Venice in 1650 uh, with a middle-aged Englishman as the protagonist uh, who's been a galley slave for both the French and the Turks and uh, has washed up on the shores of Venice. So you mentioned Venice uh, quite a bit. 
and I read a few interviews with you as well today, and you mentioned Venice as well. I think you even mentioned it in one of the science fiction uh, books that you've written. So I'm going to assume that you are a big fan of Venice. Stephen, I am a huge fan of Venice and, and literally a fan. I think that um, when we look at the past, and especially when we look at the past critically, often we tend to make some broad sweeping comments about Europe and Europeans and what they did right and what they did wrong. I would hesitate to say that Venice was morally better than, say, England or France or Genoa. But I would say that if you were a lower middle class woman or a lower middle class man, the kind of person forgotten by most of history, you would rather have been a citizen of Venice than almost any other place in Europe. And if you were a Jew or a Muslim or a homosexual, ditto. You would rather have been in Venice than any other place. It was a it was a relatively free society that would be pretty recognizable to people today. And as a modern North American, there's something about the Venetian arsenale, these guys who had the right to carry arms and they're just the people who built just just the people who build the ships but they have all kinds of political rights and there were other places in europe where people who weren't nobles had those rights and london apprentices are one of those groups you know apprentices in london had the right to bear arms and joust and do all kinds of things that were usually only done by nobles but in venice it was kind of the whole populace and i really like that and I also like its multiculturalness. And uh, quite frankly, because we all have to sell books, I like that Venice somehow just has a thing. Readers go, Venice, well, that'll be adventure. Maybe it's Assassin's Creed that mm. created this, this utterly false notion. I, 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 will, I will finish this diatribe by saying one of the things I find funniest about writing about Venice, especially writing about Venice in 1650, is that if you've ever played the game Assassin's Creed or even seen it, it would make it look like Venice was one of the most dangerous places in the world. Whereas the truth is, uh, there was so little crime in Venice that one of the first things every Englishman visiting would say is like, wow, they have no crime here. Um, it, it was it, because the state had a sort of socialist attitude from the early Middle Ages, they didn't have an underclass that needed to perform crimes. Mm -hmm. And that made it a very different place to visit. Yeah, I'm a big fan of those games. Yeah, I was going to say, I played the, <laughs> I played the very first one, um, and the first one's in Florence, and um, or it starts in Florence. It probably goes to Venice and elsewhere as well. But um, I, I, I seem to remember you saying to me, you haven't actually been to Florence, which seems incredible to me. It is absolutely true. I've been to, I, I've barely been to Siena and I've never been to Florence. Yes. I'm sure it's a major failing. Now I've just lost 50 fans right well, there. I, but, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't think you lose fans. Every, I'm just thinking, I just can't believe you haven't been there as you've been around in the vicinity, you know, the environs um, several times. And if you like Venice and you, and you, you know, you like that whole, obviously you love that period in history. Um, you know, Florence is Florence. It's just incredible. Uh, well, it, it's incredible and it has great museums, but, what it lacks, I guess, one of the things it lacks is uh, reenacting 14th century tournaments that would cause me to go there as part of my <laughs> tournament. No, I was, yeah, I was more <laughs> comparing it to Venice, really, and thinking it's a city-state. You know, it's it's just the, the the power of the city-state at the time. Surely it was like you know yeah. a, a, an arch rival of, of Venice, I would imagine. And yeah, and and there's a ton to see, and I will get there eventually. 
it's it's definitely worth it. I've been to Venice and I've been to Florence and they're both incredible, but I've never been to Siena. Um, so I, that's on my to-do list. But um, they're all amazing places. There's, I've never been anywhere in Tuscany or the north of Italy that's not worth visiting anyway. So, But moving on, moving on from Italy, because we've got lots of questions to get through. Mm-hmm. And we, I know we could probably just talk about, end up talking about Venice or Florence for the whole time. Um, which So you've written about loads of different historical periods you know we talked about about italy now and and uh, but you, you've written about all these other, other ones i mentioned in the, in the in the introduction which historical era do you prefer writing about um and of those you know which do you feel the most connected to is that the reason that you prefer writing about it you, you've, got, you've got a closer connection or, or or why do you think it is i'm going to disappoint you utterly and say all of them uh right now actually for a science fiction novel i will write later in the year I'm doing a pretty deep dive on Ming China and I'm as fascinated by Ming China as I am by Venice. And, you know, I, I I do love ancient Greece, but I did my degree in 14th century England. And I, um, I'm really very interested in Scotland in the 13th, 14th and 15th century. And in fact, I think Scotland often gets short shrift, um, with some automatic head bows to William Wallace and Robert the Bruce and a lot of not paying so much attention to uh, a lot of innovation and governmental change that went on in Scotland. But I'm also interested in the Italian banking system and the the whole world of the Flanders wool trade and um, the whole Islamic world. It, it pretty much never ends. Like I, <laughs> I've always wanted to write a novel, uh, the only Roman novel I've ever wanted to write, because I actually don't find the Romans very interesting, but uh, about the the iron trade out of East Africa, because apparently the Romans and the Egyptians were getting iron uh, up the coast of what is now Kenya, which has very good iron, and that that this trade was going on in Roman times, and I've always thought that was like deeply interesting that that there's iron probably going to the legions coming all the way from what is now kenya i don't know it it's all a bunch of good stories to me and i will be reading somebody else's primary or secondary source and i just go like all right this is fantastic i can get a book out of this in you know in in no time um and i really if you make me pick one i guess i'll say classical greece and I guess I could find some reasons why, but like 15 minutes from now, I'll trip over some factoid about 16th century Korea and I'll be all about Korea for about four months. And that is how my life seems to work. And do you have any favorite historical or fantasy authors or any in particular that inspired you to start your own writing? Yeah, my I have one absolute favorite and that's Dorothy Dunnett, who is a Scots woman in the 1960s, uh, who, by the way, completely defies what I just said about not covering Scottish history. Uh, Not only did she cover Scottish history, she sort of looked into the the nastier bits. Instead of doing William Wallace and Mm. Robert the Bruce, she looked at the collapse after Pinky and, you know, other very interesting things. And what I love about Dorothy, I love everything about Dorothy Dunn. I love the pace, which is very much not our modern pace. Right. When we write novels now, we are expected to pretty much provide an action sequence yeah. in the first few pages um, to keep the description down to a dull roar, no matter how much how fantasy, 
you know, how fantastic we find the Book of Kells or something we'd like to talk about. Uh, Dorothy Dunnett didn't have to do any of that. She wrote for a hyper literate audience, by which I just mean everyone in the UK in 1962. Um, and they were fine with going 250 pages before they got to the battle sequence. And they were fine with really getting into the knickers of how the politics worked and, you know, who didn't like whom. I just love Dorothy Dunnett. And I think, and I mean no disrespect to either one of you, but I think King Hurt Hereafter is the greatest Viking novel ever written um, because I think that Dunnett shows that the Norwegian world was part of the whole world and that Norway and Northern Scotland and the Orkneys were having a huge impact on the world that wasn't just war, a huge cultural impact and that the cultural impact was coming right back at them. And I just, I, I love that because instead of the dark ages, she sort of got the bright ages. And I just thought that was a really interesting take on the whole thing. I must admit, I've never read any of hers, but obviously, being Scottish, she's a very famous author here. Uh, I think I'll have to look that up, because you're definitely right. The way we write books nowadays, I mean, I've started books with a fight scene more than once. Yeah. You, <laughs> me too. Me, me too. I mean, that's just how you me feel. Like you, yeah, you feel like you're reading it and you feel like, I need to fit a fight scene in here because nothing's happened action-wise for a while. So I'll have to check out Dorothy Dunnett. Yeah, I often, I mean, it, it's 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 the same with with lots of books. When you go back further in, you know, out of like the last sort of ten twenty years, it's like you know, you go back to Tolkien and you know, talk about fantasy as well. I mean, again, it's very slow paced until you get to the well, real nitty gritty, yeah. you know. But they're fantastic books. I, I Stephen, I I give you the giant recommendation of King Hereafter. I think you'll love it. Um, and there's like three fight scenes in six hundred pages. And they're deeply meaningful and characterful, but they're not what the book's about. It does have the best written naval battle I have ever read. And because I'm a method actor, you know, like I try and do all this stuff and I try to understand it. I just want to know how Dorsey Dunnett sat in her university quarters and somehow came up with what a 20 ship on a side Viking naval right. battle mm -hmm. was like. Because every time I read it, and I've reread it a bunch of times, I'm like, wow, I couldn't write this. This is so good. Like, well, part of it, I, sorry, I'm, I'm just bragging about Dorothy Dunnett, but part of it is that she totally understands the role of wind and tide in a disaster, right? As your tired, beaten rowers can't keep up with the tide change off of Caithness in Scotland. And like, it's a real battle. It really happened. And it was really disastrous for one side. And she she almost is like Patrick O'Brien in dealing with the details of as the ships start to get sucked into the rocks just because their rowers can't mm -hmm. can't keep it together anymore. And you go like, yeah, yeah, we don't write enough of this. We mm -hmm. we tend to I tend to concentrate. I won't blame you guys on the hacking and the slashing. And somehow she has the whole holistic thing. She paints the whole picture rather than just the, the screams and the the shouts yep and um uh I, rosemary sutcliffe sword at sunset bunch of bunch of novels uh mary stewart i don't know if anybody reads mary stewart anymore she wrote some sort of semi arthurian stuff uh, uh, yeah uh, I, th I think i might have read that it rings a bell see i'm old 
uh, Bernard <laughs> Cornwell. I started reading Bernard Cornwell when I think I was 15 or 16 with the first Sharp book, which I still have downstairs, probably a collector's item by now. Um, uh, Celia Holland. Celia Holland, ring a bell with you guys? Nope. Not no. Me. Okay. Very impactful on me, mostly because by the time I was 16 or 17, I'd read a zillion historical novels, and most of them were about white male Englishman and in one way or another. And then Celia Holland wanders through and her novels are about Hungarians and Byzantines and women and people in Africa. And I just, and, and her knowledge of history is like incredible. And I was very struck with that too. And it wasn't just multicultural. It was like different worlds. Um, and, and the, the protagonist sometimes just dies, which is a huge <laughs> shock, but I also admired, you yeah. know, like, or loses and is captured and executed at the end. Like, oh, oh it's not, wait, the, the sword swinging hero is supposed to get the girl and, and win in the end, right? Oh, no, that would, that would be all one star reviews on Amazon for that. Yeah, it would nowadays, yeah. Uh-huh, right. I, re I remember... I remember reading a book by um, Larry McMurtry, one of the Lonesome Dove. So Lonesome Dove is one of my favourite books. Fantastic Pulitzer Prize winning, massive thousand pages or something. And I remember, I don't want to give spoilers away, but one of the, one of the sequels that he wrote later, um, it basically starts and just says, um, it, almost within the first five pages, says because you're thinking, oh, we're going to revisit all these characters. And it was just like, such and such a character. Oh, yeah, he died. He died last winter. A horse rolled on him or something. And that's it. It's just like, what? I thought the whole story was going to be about, the, you know, they're just, you know, he's dead. You know, Matt, I was just thinking the other day how in interviews I never named Lonesome Dove as one of my favorite novels, but it definitely is. Actually, it changed the way I write because I was already a writer and I read Lonesome Dove and went, the, the realism, if that's the right word, because it's a very dangerous word, but his willingness to talk about what it's like to have an eyelid cut off and then live with it for a long time and other, you know, like pretty grim stuff. Yeah. And yeah, I love, uh, this is a terrible thing to say, but I love the way he kills characters off. Characters you love, bang, yeah. they're dead. Yeah. No yeah. heroic death scene, no nonsense. People and die of And disease. sometimes even killed like off camera, you know, like off yeah. Out, you know, so people turn up. You think you've been following like for literally like three hundred pages. Like you know, ten chapters have been about one character or something, and then some other guys that goes to their chapter and they turn up and they just find the guy dead. You know, and they just like yeah. he's been scalped, <laughs> murdered. So oh, okay, there. <laughs> like that's a, it's crazy, but it's it's very realistic, very real. It feels real, and so amazing. Yeah, lots lots of historical novelists. It's what I read as a kid. Um. I mean, I read a fair amount of fantasy too, but really what I loved was historical fiction and my grandmother did too. And I lived with my grandmother for a while. So um, I had easy access to her giant library of right. very English historical fiction. Great. Well, you've written loads of historical fiction, as we've mentioned, you've written as Miles Cameron, you've written loads of fantasy, like big, big, fantasy books you know long and, and and quite a few of them um the kind you could use to prop a door open yeah. <laughs> when i was a teenager and i used to go actually buy physical books to read 
um, and I didn't have very much money, I would buy the thickest book that I could because they were pretty much priced the same. So it would be like eight, you know, I don't know, six pounds for a thousand pages. That's why I read loads from Dove, you know, or 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 six pounds for a 200 pages. So I'd be thinking, well, I'm going to read this in like a day or it's going to take me uh, two weeks to read the big one. So I'd buy the bigger books. And I think fantasy books are always been like that. You know, they, they tend to be these massive tomes. Epics. Yeah, so you've written fantasy, you've written sci-fi, you've written um, lots of historical fiction, and you've written modern-day thrillers with your dad, we mentioned at the beginning as well. So which of those genres do you prefer to to write? And, you know, is there – what are the sort of pros and cons that you find in writing the different genres? And are you do you feel pulled to go back to any that you haven't done for a while or, or are there new things that you'd like to tackle? So – I believe that genres are an invention of the publishing industry to limit the creativity of authors. Uh, I like, they're all the same to me. Is that a terrible thing to say? It's all the well, same. I guess it's, and, I guess fantasy isn't the same as, as historical because the, the, because you're making it up completely as opposed to. But that, that that's a good point because I think what you're saying there, historical and fantasy to me are more similar than science fiction. I think science fiction is completely different to the other two with the sword fighting and the horses and stuff compared to spaceships and going to different planets and you know that kind of civilization seems completely different to me in terms of genres so here's what they have in common to me i have to make them all up yeah um so if i write about 14th century italy or if i write about 6th century bc uh greece what we know about those things is so small compared to what I need to describe to create a world, to do what fantasy authors openly call world building. But we all do world building. Any time period we write about as historical novelists, we can do research to make it easier and to spring ideas. And we can stand somewhere in, I don't know, Palermo, Sicily, looking at a Norman chapel and go like, wow, I can see this scene. I can see people in this chapel, but we're still making it up. And I feel like the the act of world building is pretty much the same. And partly that is because my fantasy and my sci-fi are very fueled by history. Right. Um, so I do research no matter what, but they're also very much fueled by life experience. And I'll, I'll be honest. So my, my giant spaceships are largely based on U.S. Navy aircraft carriers, uh, my ideas of sword fighting are based on the time I spend sword fighting. My ideas of horseback riding are largely based on my own experience of horseback riding. I, I don't want to belabor this issue, but I'm a writer and I'm pretty sure I could write any genre you handed me if that's what we all wanted to do. I mean, yeah. I, I don't love every genre, um, although I'll, I'll, I'll admit without too much embarrassment that sometimes i enjoy reading romance um there are good romance novels out there and sometimes i try and interject a little romance into novels and uh i have sandboxed some horror i don't really like to read horror but uh, when i say sandbox i mean it's just you'll never see it i'm not going to publish it but i i write stories really for myself to learn about how my characters are going to interact or to make up a new character and see mm. if this woman is the way I want her to be in my head or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I guess 
I'm just not a big fan of the word genre because uh, go ahead, Matt. I, no, I, I was just going to say the difference. I was just thinking one difference I find between fantasy and because I think obviously there's different types of fantasy and your fantasy that you write, as you say, is very based in a, a, a fictionalized fantasy world, but it's based on a sort of medieval Europe or some period in Europe or in, in, in the world's history. So it's sort of based in historical fact, if you like, even though it's, it's got fantastical elements. But I think for me, one of the differences is that if you write a historical fiction novel, you um, people can turn around and tell you that it's wrong. You know, they can say you've got facts wrong. There are things that that we do know, even though we might not know very much. We do know certain things. Whereas if you're doing fantasy, it's a little bit like the difference if you're doing in a rock band and you're doing a cover version of a of a famous rock song. People can actually tell you that sucks. It doesn't sound as good as the original. It's not right, you know. Even though you say what's well, my spin on it, whatever. But if you're doing your own original music, nobody can tell you it's wrong. They can say they don't like it, but they can't tell you it's wrong because you can say, "Well, that's my song. I wrote it. I can do what I want." So I feel that there's that thing with fantasy. You can you can just make it up, and nobody can tell you that it's wrong, right? So I, I hope nobody else who writes fantasy is listening when I say this, but I. I feel like telling some fantasy authors they're wrong all the time um, about how weapons and armor work, mm. or most importantly, weirdly, because I'm I, I'm sort of the fight guy, and yet I what often annoys me is how economic or political systems don't work. Well, you seem to be very interested wanted... in in that because I noticed in your first conversation about Venice and we're talking about Scotland yeah. history as well. Obviously, it's something that really interests you is the whole sort of regime and and politics. And... Well. Human beings live in systems, you know, like I, I, I will spare you my canned lecture, but uh, the, the reason that Europeans transitioned from chainmail to plate armor, from Viking style swords to Italian long swords, and eventually to deep cut plows that allowed a whole lot of land to suddenly be brought into tillage and also to cannon is because there were changes in iron founding that profoundly changed the whole way Europe worked. And if you don't get that, you can make up some BS reasons why all of a sudden there was this mass technical change. But knowing how it actually happened in our world can help you write, I don't know, to me, a better fantasy novel. And even if you don't know that, if you make something up, you have to understand its systemic consequences. So the one I always say, and I apologize if I've said this in other interviews, is if you have magic and most people use magic, so it's a widespread use of magic. I feel that the two things you need to talk about is why, what it changes if everyone has access to birth control and the purification of water, or why those things aren't commonly available. Because the moment you have magic that can like throw fireballs and blow shit up, pardon me, you, so, I, immediate, I immediately go like, so do you provide contraception and clean water? Because if you do, the world is a completely different place. And uh, if you don't provide those things, who is stopping people from developing these technologies? Yeah. And if you don't at least discuss that, I've got to go like, well, see, that's what I mean by everything is connected to history. Because my, my argument would be, no matter what we think we made up, it's based on something. And often it shows in our outlines when we say, well, they're elves, but they're like Vikings. They're elves, but they're like the <laughs> Japanese samurai. They're elves, but they're like Ming Chinese bureaucrats. They're elves. But you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. our only our only way of describing 
our fantasy is with some reference to human experience. And I don't mean to be all like philosophical, but we tend to hit these things again and again. And if you look at Tolkien or if you look at George R. R. Martin or you look at whatever, you realize there are very obvious welded on historical examples that these are sort of coming from. And that, uh, I I guess that's my point. I think I've lost track of my point, but (laughs) that's fine. You, I don't think you would like reading our books because we don't know anywhere near as much about fighting and armor and using these kind of things as what you do. And I think you must be very hard to please as a reader. And I don't know, it frightens me to think that you might one day read my debut novel and think, what's this guy on about? He doesn't know anything about archery. He's never tried it. He's never worn a gambeson. He doesn't know anything. And, you know, I think for a reader, that must actually be quite annoying for you too. You know, Stephen, uh, let me put your mind at rest. I am the easiest reader to satisfy in the universe. I, there, I have two modes, which is I'm fine or I throw the book across the room. And I usually throw the book across the room because a character just jumped the tracks and behaved in a way that is utterly at odds with, or there's a plot hole I can drive a truck through and how the hell did the editor not catch this? What I don't do is care whether you know how, where it hurts to wear chainmail all day or uh, like how a sword works. Cause I don't know, because so few people know those things and it just doesn't bother me much. So one of my favorite movies of all time is Gladiator. And I'm sure that Gladiator got thousands of things wrong, but I'm basically a 14-year-old boy. And once I get into it, I just go with it. And that's yeah, but... that's that's the world I'm in. Same with Braveheart. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed Braveheart. I thought it was a great movie. All the historical fiction authors, you know, hate Braveheart and say how terrible it is. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was I a loved great it movie. And, um, yeah. My my uh for for like two summers after Braveheart, my lacrosse team would dress in kilts and paint <laughs> and nothing else. Uh, nice. and, and, I mean, we loved Braveheart. It was yeah. fabulous. And but that's what I mean. I feel like you just miss out on too much fun. If you can't just suspend your disbelief and go with it, just enjoy and the by story. The same, by the same token, when I read, oh, what what have I most recently read? I don't want to sound like a twerp. When I read something that's really really good, Bone Ships by R.J. Barker, it's a fantasy novel, but it's sort of a naval fantasy novel. When I read something like that, where I don't ever have to even think, where the sword fights and the nautical stuff is all sort of very nicely worked out then i i admit that's a little better but weirdly i don't think it's what it's all about i don't think my knowledge of how fighting works makes me much better as an author i think it might like i'd like to think i'm helping other authors by doing writing fighting which is this thing i do on twitter mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, I've seen that, yeah but i don't i don't even think that's why I'm a writer. Like, I'm not even sure I write better fight scenes than anybody else. I'm very curious about how things work. Yeah. But that, that doesn't cause me to like roll my eyes at other people's fight scenes. And the, except for one thing, and I'm going to complain about it. And Bernard Cornwell does it for all I know, you guys do it. And I, it's not actually an error in fighting. I think it's a cultural thing, but people from the UK believe that the hero should have the crap beaten out of him 
before he finally gets up and wins the fight. Oh, I've done that. Yeah, I've done that a lot. Yeah, yeah. My experience of fighting is that if you have the crap beaten out of you, you yeah. are then killed. Yeah. Yeah. That's but that's that's what you were saying about making stuff up before, and that's the fantastical epic element of writing historical fiction in a in a certain style, which is like the Bernard Cornwell action adventure style that 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 we I guess right as well. Whereas it's a trope, isn't it? Where you have the peaks and troughs of of action, and it's a normal storytelling trope that the main character hits his nadir or whatever, you know, the worst point just before he then finds success at the end. And that doesn't always necessarily mean a physical beating, but it's often can. Uh, James, know, take... James Bond, Richard Sharp, you name it, they have okay. to have the crap beaten out of them yeah, before they can yeah. triumph. And uh, I, you know my my nod to a number of earlier writers who had a lot more experience of fighting than i do is usually my good guy kills my bad guy in about four seconds right um and it's it's like larry mcmurtry it's like nope because as i keep trying to teach various people who i teach sword fighting to uh when a highly skilled professional meets someone who is not at yeah. his or her level it's murder it's mm. not a fight mm. it's murder you've, you've made yeah. me think you've reminded me to mention larry mcmurtry and the sort of speed of fighting you've, you've reminded me of the um the great western which is directed and and starred with um by kevin costner open range have you seen that i have not seen it although There's... i happen to mostly admire kevin costner so it's a fantastic film and if you like westerns, you should definitely watch it. And I will just give you—I'm going to give you a spoiler now because it just—you just made me think of it. There's a stand. They've basically been building up this um, gunslinger bad guy, you know, throughout the movie, and then it comes to the final showdown, and they're walking towards them, and the bad guy says something like, "and you know, goading towards Kevin Costner's character," and Kevin Costner literally just pulls his gun out and shoots him in the face, and that's it. And then the, the then the, the fight ensues with the rest of the baddies, you know. But he just takes out. The main guy that they've all been going, like, he's a real bad man, you know, takes him out in a second. He just goes, bang, you're dead, you know. Just, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. That, that, Raiders of the Lost Ark, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Anyway, I've, I've, I've beaten this dead horse, but I also want to say <laughs> another thing about a certain kind of fight scene that, um, I don't know, that I like. Uh, one of my favorite writers of all time is a nautical writer called Patrick O'Brien. And I love Patrick O'Brien. And Patrick O'Brien has the real talent for, in effect, saying, uh, and then he killed the other guy. Or, uh, you know, I saw him for a moment with his sword in his hand, clearing the deck. That was the whole fight scene. Yeah. <laughs> because his books are really about mostly male relationships, about command, about friendship, about mm -hmm. Uh, trust in all these things yeah 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 and and so you know by the time you've gotten through six jack aubrey scenes you and the author both know he's going to win all the naval fights and so he, he doesn't he stops describing them like yep they there there's some expenditure of powder and the french strike their colors that's not what this <laughs> book is about right and i I've never quite gone there, but I am tempted by it sometimes to just go like, uh, instead of making violence porn, 
how about if I just go like, well, you know that Bob is a great swordsman, so let's move on to the next scene. There's a body <laughs> at his feet. And now yeah. it turns out it's illegal to kill people in Venice. Yeah. Actually, my uh, my English former galley slave is faking being a fencing master, about which he knows nothing, but he's trying to learn from books while teaching the sons of the aristocracy. It allows me to like sort of nerd out on 17th century fencing manuals while having a character who actually mostly his only way of fighting is the way you fight as a galley slave, which is utterly foully with your with every element of your body, but not necessarily as any kind of swordsman. I'm having fun with it. It'll be fun. <laughs> that sounds good. So where are we? Well, I, I've got one here about Tom Swan. Here's a question. So Tom Swan, um, you've got a series of like like novellas, I guess, that, that about Tom Swan. Um, yep. And I've read I've read a few of the early ones. I, I this you, you write fast. You actually write and produce books faster than I can write and read. I mean, I, I can't keep up with you, but I have read a couple of the early um, Tom Swan ones. But he's a spy. Um, and kind of is involved in sort of subterfuge and, and things. Um, and you've also written some military thrillers. Um, you mentioned with your dad under under a different pen name, the, the pen name Gordon Kent. And I know that you were in the military, and um, I believe you worked in the intelligence community. Um, and you talked before about writing from experience. So how much of the sort of your own experience did you put into those both the modern day thrillers, I guess, and the, the the historical 14th, 15th century thrillers? So I wrote the the modern day thrillers with my dad while I was actively an officer in the United States Navy. And the first three of them had to be checked over by us. It was like an official Secrets Act thing. They had to be read by a security person in my office from cover to cover, which, by the way, you know, you're you're both writers you know what you go through with copy edits and page proofs and just add to that someone saying now this scene Stephen, i feel this needs to go because you <laughs> mentioned china yeah i have to mention china the book's about china no i'm uncomfortable with china could we change this to you know like it's insane and then i was out of the navy and i could write almost anything i wanted but uh yeah, I was an intelligence officer. I was even a clandestine intelligence officer, which is kind of like being a spy. Um, and uh, those first, those thrillers were very much based on my, actually my life as a naval aviator, as you know, being a backseater in various airplanes. Tom Swan, so, you know, I've been talking about my experience and, and history. There's a danger to anachronism, right? And we're all writers here. We know that there's things in the past that were really very different and ideas that were very different. So one of those things is the collection of intelligence. Um, if you imagine that, you know, they, I, I know this is obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway, they don't have television, they don't have radio, just collecting newspapers from another country and reading them in 1850 was a very effective way of gathering intelligence. Um, so, you know, English naval officers would just collect like Russian newspapers if they made a Russian port and bring them home and read them all. And then everybody would know more about what was going on in Russia. And so 
the collection of intelligence in the past is not the finely honed horrific instrument it has become. Uh, and despite that, because I did some of that basically open source collection, we call it, where you read newspapers or you just talk to people. Um, some of that is very much in Tom Swan. And Tom Swan is not precisely a spy. Tom Swan is a person floating on the, the very, very, very difficult world that he's in. Um, sort of always on the make, always trying to figure out a thing to do uh, for, for like two of the four books, because all the novellas are now compiled into books so that they sort of make sense, if you'll pardon my tell, saying that about me. Um, he works for Cardinal Bessarion, who is a Greek cardinal uh, in the Latin church in the mid 15th century, who probably more than anyone is responsible for what we call the Renaissance because he collected an awful lot of documents, um, an awful lot of Roman texts and Greek texts and got them to the West after the fall of Constantinople. So there's some of it is spying, some of it is antiquity, some of it is just being what we might call being a soldier. Maybe we call it being a knight. Maybe we like, because um, people did all these things. Uh, I based Tom Swan on an Italian named Syriac of Ancona who ran around the Middle East collecting antiquities and basically spying for the Pope uh, and for Venice and for Genoa and for various other people. And he left a diary, which is incredible. Um, I really like diaries because they give you hands-on first person uh, ideas of how it, it was. But uh, I was also deeply fascinated. You didn't ask this question, but I'm gonna say it anyway, by the fact that um, in 1450, there were Greek temples standing then that are gone now. Um, then yeah. there were Roman ruins in Rome and outside of Rome that weren't ruins in 1450. They were still buildings and they're ruins now or they're totally gone. That, you know, it was uh, it was 600 years ago and it was yeah. 600 years closer to the classical world. Mm -hmm. And I, I just find that fascinating. No, I find that really interesting as well. It's one of the things that is interesting about my Bayer brand books and he goes different places and trying to extrapolate and based on the archaeological evidence that, that's around and, and what the city's like now and what the Roman maps and the archaeology of Roman time is, what certain places like he goes now, he's in France in the latest book and trying to work out, you know, what was there and was the amphitheater totally destroyed as it is now? Was it somewhere in between? Was the bridge there? Had the bridge been destroyed? And, you know, because it was a Roman bridge and it's not there now. And, you you know, you, you're talking about 700 AD in my book, 6, 630 something, you know, 650 or something. So Yeah. Um, yeah. And See, that fascinates me too. And by the way, I love your Bayer brand books. And let me <laughs> Thank you. Add, add to that, that you inspired me to a book I'll probably never write, but I was reading your book and I had my own idea. And I think that this is perfectly legit, by the way. I hope people read my books and have their own ideas. But I was like, oh, I want to do a book on a man who's exiled and required to go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in like 750, maybe from Mercia, because it did happen. Yeah. And it, I just think it would be fun to sort of have a travel log of so I don't know. how... I don't know how far you're in to the I don't know how many of the Bayeran books you've I think you've two. Read, but I think I've got I think so, I've two, maybe three. So the ninth one is coming out um in December, and in that it's the first leg of the pilgrimage of Wilfred, 
who becomes Saint Wilfred, Bishop Wilfred. Right. He's a young man. He's going down to Rome. So we don't get all the way down to the, the Holy Land, but the, the journey is is on from Northumberland to Rome. So that's kind of that well, journey. Well, good, good on you. I, you were the man to write it, probably not me. <laughs> I, I, was, I was actually just interested in somebody seeing Damascus mm-hmm. at its height, but nice. being from, from like Anglo-Saxon England, because well, maybe that's maybe that'll be the next another book in the future. It sounds like a great story. Well, in my heart, I'm a multiculturalist, and while I absolutely love English history, I and I mean no offense, but sometimes the English can get very insular oh, about absolutely. their history. Gosh. And and sometimes I want to say like, yeah, you know, the Anglo-Saxons and the Norse they were interesting, but do you know that there was this giant high culture going on in Damascus at the same time? Do you know where all the silver came for all those Irish girls who were being sold down the river? That that was coming from Damascus. Um, and uh, I don't know. I just I just thought it'd be kind of funny to have a, a guy kind of walk constantly into greater civilizations as he goes south. Well, that's just, kind of that's kind of happening in the other I know, series it is from kind writing. Of, I, my my yeah. Hunlaf books are kind of going there as well. So he's he's kind of well, traveling good around. You. That's and and the... better you than me because you know the period and it's not oh. my period. But I, I am <laughs> fascinated. Uh, have you read the Bright Ages that just came out? No. Uh, it's a secondary history work. It's not going to tell you guys anything you don't already know. But it basically says Dark Ages, my ass. It you know like this was a vibrant, exciting time when a lot of the basis of the world that we live in today was created. And, um, you know, like it, it's only dark because people in the Victorian era wanted to get, talk about how great they were. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, and and that there's a lot going on. I mean, you already know that, but uh, it's a pretty good book. And I've, I've just been sort of send, like sending people to it who want to badmouth the, the early Middle Ages and, and, and go like, oh, yes, but the Vikings. Oh, yeah. The Vikings are part of a huge world that is actually changing culturally you know, at the speed of sound and they're inventing things that are going to cause change like better ships. Yeah. So it's incredible. It's incredible when you start delving into the history of that early medieval period and jumping into different cultures, like you said, my characters traveling to different places and realizing how rich the history is, not just of, like you say, the British Isles or but everywhere you go, it's, you know, you get, you go to go to, like you say, the Middle East or the south of Europe or different places, and he's going, my God, everywhere has got this hugely rich um, history that that often doesn't get written about and doesn't get mentioned. So too much, too much to, know, to, to write about. <laughs> do you know um, Mohammed and Charlemagne by the French historian, I want to say Perrin? No. Oh. no. It's really good. It's worth a read. It was written in the 30s, and it's still sort of groundbreaking. And what he basically argues is that um, what Muhammad really did was to change the trade patterns of the Mediterranean that actually hadn't changed with the so-called fall of Rome, mm-hmm. and that um, there would have been no Charlemagne without Muhammad, that Muhammad basically created a world that isolated the Western Mediterranean and made it different than it had been so that Charlemagne could create a new empire in a piece of the old Roman empire. It's just a, it's another way of looking at like all the trade routes and all the, all the stuff. And I'm just as interested as you are in like, what did it look like then? I have, 
yeah. I have all these because of Tom Swan and you started asking about Tom Swan and Tom Swan, by the way, is the highest level of authenticity that I do. So like different books have different, I'm going to say grades. It's like reenacting. You can go to a, a reenactment that is sort of crappy. You can go to a reenactment where, where a lot of people think they're in the movie Braveheart. You can go to a medieval reenactment <laughs> where um, you're just putting on a tournament and there's a lot of pretty girls, or you can go to what we call a full immersion where everyone is trying to do this as well mm -hmm. as they can. There's probably no fighting and it's all about cooking and living and you're going to build a 14th century peasant's hut together. That's all you're doing. No one's a knight and whatever. All of those are different types of reenactment, right? And they have sort of levels. Well, I see books, my books that way. And Tom Swan is like, we're, we're building a medieval straw hut <laughs> in, in our shirt sleeves. It's the hardest I work on the whole thing. So I have uh, a 12 book series on 15th century Rome, just what 15th century Rome looked like by an, an English Anglican bishop who wrote it in the late 19th century. Uh, I'm sure there's a limited audience for that. Uh, and <laughs> And I think I have every map and pilgrim's itinerary for Rome so that when Tom Swan moves around mm. 15th century Rome, I want him to move around 15th century Rome, but I want him to trip over ancient Rome uh, constantly. And I, I want to say that out loud because readers of my stuff are also readers of, you know, of Gordon Doherty stuff, of Simon Scarrow stuff, of SGA Turney stuff. And they, they love Romans. Yep. So they want to, to, hear the landmarks called out, not to mention that if you're in the so-called Renaissance, you know, Renaissance people valued the ancient world. So they, they care when they're going through the forum or whatever, but it is, as you say, hilarious to go like, is this bridge here at all? Yeah. Yeah. And trying to work out, you know, what state of repair is it? And because sometimes yeah. you know, things are there, but they're you know half as knackered as they it's are now. Someone or... will definitely know, and they'll I'm tell not, you if you're wrong. I'm not uh, even sure if 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 many. Well, they'll have an do. opinion anyway. They'll have an opinion, yeah. Yeah, I, Stephen, I Stephen or Steve, hey Stephen. Okay, Stephen, I, I write as if somebody like me, but with a nastier yeah. lack of sense of humor, yeah. is reading. But I'm I'm with Matthew. I'm not positive, like. Probably in 20 years of writing historical fiction, I've gotten 20 sharp criticisms. And in each case, the person was right. I've never had, right. well, I have, I have had people ask stupid ass questions, but there, I've gotten about 20 pieces of reader mail. I won't call it fan mail where they're like, do you know that blank? Well, no, I didn't know that. And that does ruin that scene, doesn't it? Um, my absolute favorite, by the way, is that I somehow missed that the Marquis de Lafayette, because you mentioned that I wrote a book on black uh, loyalists during the American Revolution, African soldiers or African former slaves fighting for the British Army. And he said, how, how come you don't ever mention that the Marquis de Lafayette, Washington's best friend and third in command, had a black servant who he treated as an equal? Why wasn't that in your book? And I'm like, yeah, because I didn't know. <laughs> Because yeah. Lafayette is actually a major character, and that would have been fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I, sorry. You sorry. can't know yep. everything, can you? That's the thing. And you, 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 you write it and you put it out, and then 
somebody tells you afterwards, oh, you're missing some major thing, and what can you do? Uh, and in my William Gold series, just this last book, somebody wrote to me and said, you know, you have Jean Lemaigre at a tournament in in Milan. He's been dead for two years. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. Wow. Missed that. Anyway, uh, can't always get it right. But the the places um, I, uh, I find just endlessly fascinating. So I was just in Venice. Um, taking a gondola ride, which was quite costly, but tax they are expensive. Yeah. purely for work Yeah, um, to look at what was actually there in 1650. Cause I have a gondola chase scene. And, nice. <laughs> uh, well, like who won't enjoy that in the TV show that no one will ever make. Um, but uh, guys exchanging incompetent wheel lock pistol shots in, in gondolas. It just seems to me like an endless amount of fun. Um, but, <laughs> You know, some of the canals have even moved. Yeah, they, yeah, right, yeah. It, it, It's not. It looks like nothing has changed in Venice, but sadly, yeah, stuff mm. has changed. Anyway, I'll yeah. drop this. But it is we we have this in common, <laughs> and that's why we first met in an Iron Age fort. That's yes, this is true. Yes, we did <laughs> meet in an Iron Age fort just uh, just a few weeks ago. But um, well, we've basically been talking for over an hour i think so we sort of come to the end of our time but Should we maybe, just before the, yeah I think, can, can i just ask this one? Oh yeah you can just as a final one you might not want to answer it uh, christian but do you have any particularly exciting or funny tales from your days in the military many and i <laughs> bore people at campfires uh <laughs> constantly but I'm trying to think of one that's clean and funny at the same time and doesn't involve anything that I wouldn't want to say on the air. Uh, I guess I don't think this is particularly funny, but I'll, I'll just say it because it, it matters to me. I, I was like many young men, very insecure about what we might call manliness for a long time. And I remember uh, during the Gulf War, when I was flying as a backseater, I don't even think we'd been shot at. It just we we had a long flight. It was a difficult flight. We were looking for surface-to-air missile sites, and the plane landed, and we were the last plane down from a big event like bombers and stuff like that. And we were the last plane down, so the flight deck was quiet. Which uh, I don't know if you've ever like even seen an aircraft carrier movie, but the flight deck isn't often quiet during like wartime operations. And so I got to walk from the plane without the din and with this glorious star field overhead. And I just remember thinking like, I don't think I'm ever going to need to worry about manliness again. I think I have now hit some sort of like, it was, it was a weird thought, but it's a thought I go back to often. And it actually plays into writing as like, mm -hmm. you know, you spend a lot of time and I'll bet both of you have to going like, did I do this right? Am I brave? Am I brave enough? And then, most of us get to a point of maturity where we go like, yeah, probably brave enough. Or if I'm not, this is as much brave as I've got. Uh, and I just remember that one sort of experience as being probably more profound than it needed to be. I think I was alive and had thought for about five seconds that I wasn't going to be alive at that point. Um, so that's one. And uh, another one that my wife is tired of hearing because we just went to Sicily is that... Um, 
one night on a very routine flight where I was flying as what we call self-loading baggage, meaning I was flying to get the flight hours uh, and had no purpose in sitting in the back of the plane except to get my flight hours. We had a total hydraulics failure, which means we couldn't get the landing gear down, which is really, really bad. Uh, and this is an S3 Viking, which is a fairly big carrier aircraft. And my, um, my pilot, who was one of my favorite guys in the squadron, um, was aware that uh, in four seat ejections, this is a jet with four seats, um, the two backseaters of whom I was one uh, had always died up till that point, um, fried by the jets of the front seaters punching out. So he announced that he was going to try and land the plane with no landing gear. And um, there's no heroism by me in this story. He, the pilot did everything. But what I remember best was it was just sunset and he decided to land at NAS Sigonella, Naval Air Station Sigonella in Sicily, um, which is just below the slopes of Mount Etna. And, you know, there's a lot of history on Sicily and there's a lot of ancient Greek and Roman history. And we had a long glide path coming in because the ailerons weren't working too well. So he wanted to straight into the runway. So I had time to like look down and really look at sicily while also thinking like we have no landing gear so this is the last <laughs> thing i'm going to look at that's just this nice. is the last thing i'm going to look at and um yeah i don't know and then um my pilot did a fabulous job the plane didn't even catch fire he did very little damage to the plane he got a medal for this right. and we wow. all walked away and drank the best bottle of wine of our lives uh <laughs> My hands shook for about 12 hours after that, but it was all fine in the end. Anyway, those are just a couple of uh, random sampling uh, stories that I don't think can offend anyone. Yes. Um, I, was, I was just in Sicily with my wife for our 20th wedding anniversary, and I probably told that story way too many times. I think people started to have their eyes glaze over, but it, it, it caused me to believe that Sicily was a wonderful place. Wow. You survived to tell yeah. the tale, so it sounds... Sounds like a formative moment as well. In your, in, it's the first in, time we've heard the story, so we enjoyed that's it. That's true. And the people listening to this, yeah, I mean, there's probably most of the people listening to this yeah. won't have heard it before. So, yeah, that was Okay, good, sounds safe. A good way <laughs> to move safe. on to the, the ending then. So move on to the end. So we, we normally ask all our guests a, a certain, um, a couple of questions. Um, one of them about what have you been reading, but we already talked about what you've been reading recently. You mentioned um, different different books earlier. So I'm um, just going to ask well, you. No, no, I'm going to make you listen to the answer. Go on, <laughs> right go on, now, then. go on then. Right, right now. What, what are you reading? What are you reading? Go on, reading, let's do that. I'm reading a brilliant book called 1587. Uh, and 1587, uh, a year of no significance is what it's called. It's by a Chinese historian. And it's about what he believes is the tipping point moment where the Ming dynasty fell apart. It is one of the best pieces of historical writing I've ever read. It's, it's almost like four historical novellas put together because he actually has characters. They're all real people. And he's, he's reading from their because the Chinese, all, all great Chinese people sort of wrote a, a, a journal or a diary. So they have a level of, of primary source material that we might envy. It's really great. Okay. That sounds amazing. And um, what are you watching at the moment? Are you watching any good TV? or films have you watched any movies or anything i'm i'm spacing out rings of power um i really enjoyed the first couple of episodes am, am i okay to admit that i paint little 
soldiers. Absolutely. A, you can, you a, can admit I, that. So uh, I, I paint little men. And uh, when I want to do some painting, I often want some background, whatever. Mm. Uh, I, I fell in love with Rings of Power. I'm a huge Tolkien nerd. I know there's lots wrong with it. It just doesn't bother me. Kind of like I was saying to you guys earlier. <laughs> um, the good outweighs the not so good to me. And so I'm rationing that. And then uh, my daughter is a huge, I have a daughter, she's uh, 18. She's a huge Marvel uh, Universe nerd. Uh, she'd hate my saying that, but she'll never hear this. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, I've been keeping up on my She-Hulk and my Moon Knight and stuff like that. That's kind of the stuff I watch. Um, oh, and my wife and I just watched a whole bunch of Stonehenge stuff. Because I was at Stonehenge the day after I saw Matthew. And um, so I've just been sort of watching everything that's on YouTube uh, that is does not involve uh, alien astronauts. So there's, there's a link there. You know, you saw some old rocks the day after you saw an old rocker. An old... <laughs> there you go. Oh, very good. Uh, you're a dad, aren't you? That is a dad joke. Definitely. Right there. <laughs> We're all brings, dads. We can all tell those jokes. It brings us on to the the last question: What have you been listening to, and do you listen to music when you write? That is an awesome question, Steve, and, and I wish more people would ask that. Uh, you know, I'm 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 serious. So yeah, I always listen to music when I write. Um, I I deeply believe that art makes art. Uh, I've had some of the best ideas I've ever had, either standing in art galleries or listening to a rock concert or mm -hmm. watching a ballet one of the best fight scenes of my life came to me in a ballet it had nothing to do with the ballet i just believe that other people's art makes my art better so uh at the moment uh i'm this will probably be really a downer after that exciting intro i've been listening to steel eye span for the first time in like 10 years uh -huh. i used to listen mm -hmm. to lots of steel eye span then i kind of let go um then I was just introducing it to two people who'd never heard it. And so now I've been, I have Steel Ice Band as sort of constant playlist. Steel Ice Band, Jethro Tull, whole time I was in England, I was playing Jethro Tull because driving through Southern England, listening to Jethro Tull's Heavy Horses album, somehow that was like the thing. That's one of my favorite albums actually. There, isn't it? I don't Sounds know if great. you can see it from the light, but it's- uh, All right. Ian Anderson. Yeah. So, yeah, Jethro Tull are my favorite band. Although I like the heavier stuff, but you don't listen to that when you write, do you? I would find um, it too rhythmic. You know, I would want too melodic. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, I'll be honest. What I'm listening to, I, I'm I'm very much a method actor, Stephen. So, uh, usually I listen to 14th century instrumental music. Right, right. When I'm writing the 14th century, mm -hmm. and uh. When I write ancient Greece, I tend to listen to like I was going to say modern. I don't mean modern, but like Greek Orthodox Church music, which mm -hmm. has nothing to do with ancient music. But um, I, you're right. I don't listen to like melodic, lyrical, modern rock, which I like. But that's not. I, I would start listening and I would stop writing. Yeah, exactly. Same that's as what us. We, we've, yeah. yeah, we've we've agreed that. Yeah, we would sing of... along, or I would pick up a guitar and try and play along, or something. So yeah, it's... I'm I'm the same as you. You like something a wee bit more white noise, almost, but atmospheric at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a while back, I and this is what I'm going to listen to when I write my 16 my 17th century Venice. 
I, uh, I found a lot of uh, pre-Baroque or early Baroque church music. It's not what I would willingly listen to every mm -hmm. day, but it turns mm -hmm. out I really like writing to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like Monteverdi and Palestrini and people like that just sort of flows along or opera because I don't know what they're saying. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You can't sing along. <laughs> you could try. But do you guys do you guys know the fantasy writer Nick Eames? Uh, sorry, what was his name? Nick Eames. Nicholas Eames. That does uh, ring a bell. I've never read these books, but I have seen them. Uh, he, he wrote a really fantastic trilogy. Uh, the one I remember the title to is Kings of the Wild. Oh but yeah, I do, I do know the one you mean. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. all sort of vaguely based on 70s, 80s and 90s rock. Yeah. And that's what he listens to while he writes and we had the same conversation. I'm like, how, how do you keep it together? Like, <laughs> you know, as soon as Pat Benatar starts singing, I'm listening to Pat Benatar. Yeah. I'm not getting anything done. Exactly. But I'm Stephen, I'm really glad we shared Jethro Tull because uh, a lot of people just look at me and go like, "Who?" Yeah. And I'm like, uh -huh. "The band that invented the term heavy metal." Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, like, uh, I would, yeah, anyway. pretty much. Well, they had Tony Iommi in the band, so yeah, Tull certainly have their part in heavy metal. Yeah, so great band. So yeah, we've we've got some overlap there, and all the way. I, I really like mm -hmm. Steel Ice Band. Not I've got not got all their albums or anything, but I, I I definitely love all around my all around my hat and Gaudete yeah. and all that stuff is fantastic. I'm sure Ian Anderson actually produced one of their albums. Did he really? I'm that sure he cool. did. I'm sure I'm sure he did because I tried to listen to it, but I didn't like it to be honest. But that was why I tried it. I'm sure he produced it. See, in my fantasy band, uh, there's Ian Anderson and there's Maddie Pryor at the same time. Yeah. It it had to be a good idea. Anyway, whatever. There you go. Which <laughs> which brings us on to back to fantasy, <laughs> full circle. <laughs> so thanks ever so much for your time in joining us today, Christian. Well, it's been friends, great. this has been great fun. Thank uh, you. I, I really enjoy talking to you both. I hope you'll have me back. I'll I'll think of a better story to tell. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, we've, we've actually we've actually had to skip about half yeah, of the quite questions a few we questions, had. Yeah, so we can keep we'll keep the script and we'll just ask the other questions next time. We'll get you on in a year or something, and we'll just have another another chat. Sounds fantastic. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank I you. Really, and we really yeah, appreciate you coming on. It just flowed completely naturally, and we could have went on all night like this. So, thanks very much, Christian. That's because I just talk and talk and talk in a very boring way. <laughs> Not boring. I knew you'd be. I knew you'd be a good guest after we we met you know, a few weeks ago, and and you said to me, so I could just talk forever." And I thought, "Okay, it's perfect. We'll get you on. We'll get you on the podcast." <laughs> yeah, you you should get my my wife's view on that. But yeah, <laughs> we'll get we'll do a podcast in a few few months. Maybe we'll get all the wives. We'll just interview all the wives on the podcast. I think that I think that could be fantastic. And I will close my part in this show by saying I, I landed my girlfriend, now wife, when she basically said, can you name all the kings and queens of England from from King Alfred? And I'm like, yes, I can. And I started <laughs> rattling through them. Impressive. And she's like, you're the man for me. So that's it. That's how I that's how I, I got where I am today. Kings there and queens go. of England. She sounds like a keeper. <laughs> she is. All right. Well, thanks very much. Yeah. That's it for today's episode. 
We hope you've enjoyed it. Please let us know if you have any questions or things you'd like us to cover in future episodes. You can contact us on our Facebook page, which is um, facebook.com, Rock Paper Swords Podcast, or on Twitter at rock underscore swords. You can find out more about our books on matthewharfey.com and stephenamackay.com. And we're also both on Twitter and Facebook, and um, we love to hear from readers and listeners, so drop by and say hi. The theme music is written and performed and copyrighted by us. Until next time on Rock, Paper, Swords, it's goodbye from me, Matthew Harfey. And it's goodbye from me, Stephen A. McKay. And remember, whatever action and adventure you have going on in your life, be kind, stay safe, and happy reading. (laughs) 